You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. Mark chapter 14 is where we're going to be. Let me me ask you this first. Have you ever got a gift that you knew when you received it, it cost that person absolutely nothing? You're like, you cheap something, something. Like, really? This is what you got me? You, You do realize we're like best friends and you got me this? Like growing up, I remember being a kid, and my family didn't have a whole lot of money, so it wasn't, we weren't big with Christmas gifts and birthday gifts, but my one aunt had a lot of money, but she always decided to keep that money very close to herself. So my birthday would come around, and I know she had a lot of money, and I would get the nicest gift that the Dollar Tree had to offer, you know, probably one of those like little magnet draw the beard on the guy type of thing, and I'm thinking, really? This is the... I'm 12, but I know what you make. I I know what your kids get. They're driving around on power wheels right now, like scooting all over, and you get me this. All right, that's cool. But then you you get that one that you know costs a lot, that, like, you almost feel guilty receiving it. Like, you just spent that much money on me? Like, I told you the story before about this watch. This is the watch. I have another watch, but this is the watch that my wife got me on our first Valentine's Day dating, and I was kind of angry because she spent so much money on a watch for me, even though she knew that I would love it. Like, there's, there's that tension between, like, okay, I know that gift was cheap. Like, seriously, you, you, it's already opened. That, that board game you got me is missing pieces. Come on, seriously. You know, I've, I've gotten that before. That's a true story. Where you get a gift that you're like, I know you found this from your grandma's attic. Like, she died a month ago, and you just took this and thought that would be a good gift for Jesse. Seriously, back down. But then you get, you get that other gift that you're just overwhelmed. Like, how, how could you give me this? Like, this is valuable. I, you almost don't want it because you feel like you're causing them harm, you know. But yet you receive it and you're, you feel like an overwhelming sense of gratitude. You guys know what I'm talking about. You've been in those situations. We've all been there. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and to kill, kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with alab- an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who had said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand before burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, I want to look at something here. We started a long time ago in the book of Mark, started it, went through it for about a year, put a pause on it because I felt like God was leading somewhere else for a season. And now we're at the Gospel of Mark, Part 2. What Part 2 really is, is this last week of Jesus' life, up until the crucifixion and the resurrection. We see this last week happening. But what we need to understand is this, when, when Mark gives us this story, he's not quite going chronological here. 
okay? So the last few weeks since we started part two, we've been going kind of chronological. He goes into Jerusalem. We see the palm leaves. We see, we see his entry. We see the things that he does, the miracles. We see the things that he says to the Pharisees. He goes into the temple. And then Mark kind of takes a break for a second. And he says, okay, a couple days before Passover, the, the Pharisees are looking to kill him. And then it says, and while he was at Bethany, so we're going right now in timeline, if you're trying to track with what's happening here, Mark's telling us this is about Wednesday, and he says, let's look back at Saturday. What happened before we came into Jerusalem on Saturday, this is what happened. So when we were in, Jer- or when we were in Bethany last Saturday, Jesus goes, and we see this woman come and anoint him, okay? We've all heard this story before, right? Let me ask this question. Do you know that there's two different times this happens to Jesus? This is not the first time that he's been anointed with oil from a woman. We see this story said here in Mark. We see this happen in Matthew, and we see this happen in John. Luke tells us a different time of Jesus being anointed. Early on in his ministry, not in his last week. We see a woman who was a sinner come into a Pharisee's house and anoint him. Now what we see here from the other Gospels, we see this here is Mary, the sister of Martha the sister of Lazarus, who comes to him the week before in the disciples' house, or in in her house in Bethany, and anoints him. Two separate occasions, Jesus was anointed with this oil, celebrating him from head to toe, two different times from two different women. One who's a sinner, who's broken and needed forgiveness, and the Pharisees are angry. The next time we see Mary, a friend of Jesus, who's anointing him, and the disciples are angry. Two different stories. Two different times this happens. And for some reason, Mark decides to reflect back to a week prior so we see something here that we might have missed. This is not chronological. John records it like this. If you look at John, John is a lot more chronological, giving us the order of things. What happens is, do you remember the story of Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother? He dies. And they're like, if you would have been here, Jesus comes Lazarus come forth out of the grave, back to life. It said he stinketh. He'd been dead for a while. He stank, and he comes back to life. So we see that happen. Then what we see is this plot to kill Jesus because people are starting to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They've heard the stories of Lazarus raising from the dead, and they're starting to believe that this is true. Something is real here. So the the Pharisees start to plot to kill Jesus. Many believe. And then Jesus returns back to Bethany, and this is what we see. Her come to him and anoint him. Why is she anointing him? He just raised her brother from the dead. She just, her, her family was dead and now it's alive. There's a response here that she, she gives this gift. Kenny, if you can come up here again a second time. Let's look at this verse. Just stand there for a second, sorry. In Matthew, we see this verse that when she anoints him, it says he reclined at the table. Now, when you think recline, what are you thinking? You're thinking like a lazy boy chair, like just chilling. He's leaning back, just like like he's in a low rider car, just chilling, just lean back. That's not what's happening here. In In that custom, in that time period, if you were reclining at the table, it would look more like this. Kenny, can you come up here and lay on your stomach? Go ahead and lay on your stomach. Okay, 
not like you're dead. Um, <laughs> now lean, lean up on one arm, like prop yourself up on one arm. One arm, yep. And the other arm, here's his dinner plate. So you would lean, you would all have your heads toward the table together, and you would lean up on one arm and use your other arm to eat. This is what it means reclining at the table. It's not what you pictured in your head, right? This seems really uncomfortable to me. As a big guy, I don't like leaning on my arm very long. It goes dead quick. I'm shaking my hand. I'm switching. It's, I, I, can't, I, I love the pictures of people who are always like laying on their stomachs reading. That's not me. I, my, my chest hurts. I'm, like, I'm in pain. This, this is what's happening here. And so at Mary and Martha's house, Jesus is reclining, having this dinner with his friends who he had just raised from the dead, the brother that he had just raised from the dead. And Mary's thinking, I've seen him worshipped before. There was a sinner who had worshipped him before with her oil. And she takes this oil, what she has, Mary takes this and says, he just raised my brother from the dead. I want to worship him, and I want to serve him. And she breaks her jar of oil, her her flask. It's It's not like, you know, like a little glass bottle. This alabaster is like a rock. She cracks this rock, and she anoints his head, and she anoints his feet. And then what we see in the other Gospels is that she uses her hair. She takes her, hairs, her hair down and dries off his feet, wipes his, his feet with this. We see, we see here two different things that happen. In one, in one situation when we have heard this story before, we see a sinful woman. She takes 20 months worth of her money, 20 months worth of wages. So that's almost two years worth of earning. And she pours this out on Jesus, this sinful woman prior in the Gospel of Luke. And it's a response to her brokenness. We see that she heard about Jesus being at this house of the Pharisees. She goes and finds it, shows up, and just starts. She says she stood over him weeping and washed him with her tears and broke the thing and began to anoint his body. She stood there in brokenness, looking at his holiness, saying, I need to worship him. I need to serve him. And the Pharisees become angry because of who was worshiping. They say, don't you recognize who is doing this? She's a sinner. She doesn't deserve to do this. She shouldn't be in this place. So we have that one instance of this act being poured out in worship. And the very next thing that we see is Mary, she's the same framework, but she takes 10 months worth of anointment, of ointment. 10 months worth of salary. Think of what you make in 10 months. Think of the amount of money that you, cr- that you accumulate in 10 months. That's, it doesn't matter what pay level you're on. That's a lot of money. 10 months, she just says, you raised my brother from the dead. You deserve all of this. And she breaks it and pours it out on him. She's responding to seeing life restored. She's responding to seeing his holiness, but in a different aspect than the other woman. The other woman sees his holiness and her brokenness. This lady, Mary, sees his holiness and his great power and authority to bring life back into her, into her family. She's responding from a different motive of worship. And the disciples, instead of the Pharisees being angry because who was worshiping, the disciples are now angry because of how she's worshiping. How often does this mindset take place in our church? where we can sit in our pews feeling either holy like a Pharisee and seeing unbelievers come to Christ and start worshiping and then begin to feel a little bit angry about it. 
do you really know what this person does? I really don't think they should have that position in the church. They really shouldn't be allowed to say that. They really shouldn't be allowed to be welcomed into the church. They should probably sit toward the back. I have seen that in churches over and over again. And Jesus says, if you knew how much she was forgiven, if you knew how much she's forgiven, you let her worship. He, he understands that she's responding out of worship for her, from her brokenness. Or how often are we like the disciples who think, okay, your, your way of worship, I understand it, but we could probably do a little bit something different and more beneficial to the poor, a little bit more economical with your choice of worship. I don't like the way, the way you raise your hands. I don't like the way you give to the poor. I don't, I don't, we, we can become very critical of other people's worship in the church because we don't, it's not the way we would do it. It's not the way we would perform things. I think it's interesting, and I'll talk about this later, that the very next text that we see goes back from this moment that happened a week ago or less than a week ago and says, and Judas saw this and desired for a way to betray Jesus. His response, when you look at John and Matthew and Mark, is the next thing we see is in Judas's heart, he sees this woman worship, and there was something in him. When he got rebuked, and when they got rebuked by Jesus, saying that the poor you would always have, forget about the money, he thought, this is not the God that I want to serve, who accepts this. Wasting ointment. Ten months worth of money poured out here in this moment. That's not the God I want to serve. And so he looks for a way to betray Jesus. It doesn't make sense to him. See, I want us this morning, when we look at this passage, I want us to see what's really happening here and the the message that we should apply to ourselves. A couple things I want to tell you about worship. Worship is not always comfortable. That's really awkward for this lady to be over Jesus as he's laying down eating a meal and begin to pour oil on him. That would, I'm, I'm sure she felt a little bit uncomfortable in this moment. H- how did that work? How, do, how does she get down and dry his feet on the ground with her hair? I don't have long hair. Never really did. It got about this long and was curly, and I looked like Joe Millionaire from that show back in the day. And now I just couldn't do that if I wanted to. But, like, what, there's an uncomfortability. Her worship caused her to break everything she had, get down on the ground, and dry his feet, and anoint his head, and anoint his feet. There's a moment of uncomfortability, and worship should provoke something in us that we're uncomfortable. We don't quite like the way we're doing this. It causes us to be a little bit different than what we normally do. Worship is not always easy. It's not always easy. Worship promotes and provokes humility. Something in us should be humbled when we're worshiping our creator. Like the sinful woman who's standing there in tears because she sees Jesus. She sees his holiness and she's broken in tears. Jewish women rarely ever took down their hair in public. So for a woman to do this in that culture, it wasn't normal. It wasn't something you do. It provoked humility in her when she let her hair down and humbled herself. It provoked intimacy. This is something that you wouldn't do with strangers present. And she did it in worship. 
touching feet, touching somebody's feet was something that was reserved for servants. So when she's worshiping with all these things, she's got, she's open to intimacy. It costs her something financially, 10 months worth. It costs her something in humility. This is not something you do. And she's doing it. And Jesus applauds it. I love the way he ends. I say to you that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. There was this moment where she could worship the God and the creator of everything, the one who just brought her brother back to life. And she cost her something financially. It cost her something with humility, her intimacy. It cost her everything. But there was such a reward afterwards. Can you imagine Jesus saying to you in front of your friends, his story will be proclaimed throughout all of history. Everywhere my story is, her story will be as well. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you after you've just poured yourself out in complete brokenness and humility? Worship also has rewards. We pour ourselves out, but there is something so rewarding about worship. True, honest worship. True humility. True brokenness. That first woman, the sinful woman, her reward was forgiveness. Jesus declared that she was forgiven in front of those Pharisees. That was her reward. This Mary, her reward was she was exalted in front of a group of men who were mocking her, essentially, who didn't understand. She was exalted, and her story is continued to be exalted. True worship has rewards, and it also brings brokenness and has a cost. We can, we can play music, and we can sing the line, lines to the song. We can do that, but we can also n- have a room full of people singing a song and not have any worship. There can be a moment in a church, and I'm sure there are churches in America, where the songs are being sang, the instruments are being played, but nobody is worshiping their creator. Nobody. I don't want that to be this church. I don't want that to be the existence that we have. I want us to understand what it is to have a heart of worship, that it's not about just singing songs and repetition. It's not about the instruments or, or how good of a drummer we have that really builds us all up into like this feeling of excitement. But there's something, worship should cost us something. Worship is not music, but music can be used for worship. Let me also say this, because in that moment, she wasn't singing a song. She was pouring an ointment out. Your money is not worship, but money can be used for worship. Or you can worship your money. We have a couple choices there. Your time is not worship. I've heard people say, well, you know, I worship Jesus by, you know, feeding at the blah, 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 and this and this. That's, that could be true. But your time in itself is not worship, but your time can be used for worship. Your works, the things that you do, aren't worship, but they can be used for worship. I hope that we get this. I hope that we're on, I, I see a lot of tired eyes. Maybe it was a heavy, heavy, I don't know, week this week. You're just tired from shoveling snow. I don't, I don't know. But your works aren't always worship, but they can be used for it. Your songs, everything you have can either be used for worship or just used as, a, as something else. 
We should worship in response to him. That's what I see these two women doing. They worship in response to something, who he is and what he's done. Whether it's healing or forgiveness, we should worship in response. We get to worship in response to who he is and what he's done for us. I, I look at church services, and this is the part I said might step on some people's toes, and so I, I'm just going to be honest with you, and um, that's the way it is, sorry. I look at church services nationally, and we're told in Scripture when we see the idea of church that we are to gather and sing spiritual songs. This is a command to us. As the body of believers, we are to gather and worship, gather and sing to him, we gather and pray, we gather and to baptize. These are things that we're told to do in Scripture as a church. So the question that raises in my mind is, how come in America, in your average church, does about half of the church congregation show up way after worship has started? Way after. Like, two-thirds of the way through. The average church. Do... do do all do half of Christians on Sunday mornings all of a sudden have car trouble? Is it just like an epidemic on Sundays? So it's just, the car trouble just started. All of our alarms just shut off for some reason on Sunday mornings. We just on my alarm. It was a I've, I've, it was a rough morning. Rough morning. Half of Christians are having rough mornings on Sundays. All of a sudden, Monday through Friday we get to do work on time, but Sunday morning it was a rough morning. It's just, and I cannot tell you how many, and this is what I'm saying, I'm going to step on people's toes, but I feel like I have to say this this morning. Half, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, I'll just be late for a little bit of worship. I'll, I'll miss just a little bit of worship, but I'll, I'll get to the message. Can I say something, and I'm the pastor preaching the message? Worship is not an appetizer. Worship is the main event. The message is not the main course here. It's part of it. It's part of the meal. But worship is not an appetizer that we get, eh, I'll pass on the blooming onion today. That's not what this is. Worship is not blooming onion that we get to pass on. This is something that should have a priority in my heart. How come when we go to a concert or a sporting event or a Broadway play or any kind of show that we pay for, we're there early. We got our seats reserved. We're ready for this thing. Because I paid for it. You all know that you've been to that concert, that show, or that game, that football game, and you see that one family, that one family that rolls in 20 minutes late, and everybody's like, what happened to them? They must have a lot of money because they don't really care about this thing. Maybe they couldn't find the parking lot. Maybe they're not from around here. Those are the thoughts that go through our mind when we're at like a public event, like a sporting event or, or whatever. We all, we all see that late person on those events and think they, just, they, must have, they must have had a difficult day or they just have a lot of money and don't care about tickets. I was at a, a football game this last year, and this family showed up almost at the end of the second quarter. I'm thinking, did you not pay the same price I did for the seat? Because I made sure I was, my dad and I were here an hour and a half before the game started. Like, it was just us and the janitor at that time. Like, I know I wasn't missing a second of this game. But yet somehow in, in every church in America, it's, it's no big deal that the majority of believers show up halfway through worship. We made it just in time for the announcements and the message. We're good. And I'm not saying there's not reasons. Everybody's been late for church. I do it. We all do it. Something's happened. But there should be something in me that provokes me to say, this is a priority. It's not something I get to miss. 
This is, this is something that I look forward to, to get to worship my creator as a corporate body. As the scripture tells me to do, this is a priority in my life. I don't understand how I, I've seen this multiple times where I've gone to churches where the church pastor, like the worship's going on, and it's about three seconds until the last note is played. And all of a sudden, the, the lead pastor comes through the side door like, like he just walks out the last second like, the high priest has come down the mountain. I'm here to share with you the word from the Lord. Like, the, I, don't, I don't get that. Do you not worship? Are you, are you not allowed to worship with the rest of us low people, oh, humble servants? No. The pastor should be worshiping the same way as the rest of the crowd. We get to gather together to worship his name. His name. That is the highlight of my Sunday morning is to that moment where I get to stand there and worship him. That's the highlight of my morning. Whether I'm preaching, whether Pastor Dennis is, is in town, whether Jared's preaching, that's the highlight of my morning. Because we, there's something about worship. There's something in me that needs to say, God, I give you everything. I gotta Get out of my comfortability. I've told you this before, and, and, may, and I'm still breaking free. I'm still getting freedom here in worship. I'm still learning to be humble. I'm still learning to pour out my alabaster jar. I'm still learning this. But there's something over here where I have to intentionally get out of my comfortability I have to get out of my zone because the normal Jesse, if you talk to my wife, you all know I don't dance. I don't do it at all publicly. Like when I go to a dance, if you invite me to your wedding reception or, or bar mitzvah or, or whatever, I'm not dancing. This is, this is the extent of my dancing. That's it. That's it. But on a Sunday morning, I look like a big fat goofball just because I'm free. I'm like, I don't care who's looking at me. I don't care who sees my, my pit stains this morning. Because it's true. It's there every Sunday morning. That's why I'm wearing a jacket right now. There's, I look forward to this moment where we get to come together and we get to sing his praises. We get to recognize how good he is. I get to be like the first woman who realizes my sin and my need for a savior and I'm just down here pouring it out. Or I get to be like, the la- like this Mary who realizes that he's brought life back into my dead bones and I get to pour it out here. That's what worship is. Whether it's through song or through the rest of your week, if you're saying something's worship, what does it cost you? What does it cost you? What are you pouring out? What are you breaking on his feet, anointing him with your hair? Or what, what, are you, what are you doing? What does worship look like? It's not just your put on Christian radio station and then let's let that play in the background. Maybe, but worship is something that comes from the inside. There's something in the heart. There's something about brokenness that receives it. I've said this before, and I said this a few weeks ago. I should feel all the real joy when I'm worshiping him. I don't think about anything else. I shouldn't be. If I'm thinking about something else, I'm not worshiping him. My mind's distracted. But when I focus on who he is and what he's done, I can't describe that joy of that moment. But also in that moment, there can be real tears and real brokenness when he begins to reveal things about myself that I don't like and he doesn't like. And he causes life to come out of dead bones. There can be both of those things in the same heart of worship, and that's what I desire for our church. That's what I desire for those four songs that we sing on a Sunday morning to not be lyrics that we regurgitate because it's what we do every Sunday, but something that comes from my heart that says, I don't care who sees me, I'm pouring my box out. I'm pouring it all on you. I'm giving you my junk. I'm giving you my wealth. I'm giving you everything I have. In this moment, at this hour, I'm praising you because you're good.
I got way off my notes right now. Does our worship look like one of these women? Does it? Or does it look like that Pharisee concerned about who was worshiping? Can I I say something this morning? If you don't value worship, then your worship has no value. If you don't look to that moment and say there's real value in there, then what you're giving is, is nothing. Look back to the earliest sacrifices of Cain and Abel. One had a real heart value and the other one didn't. And one was pleasing to God and one wasn't. And this morning I ask, are we like the disciple who's trying to judge other people's worship? Are we like Mary who says, God, I got 10 months worth that I'm just dumping on you. I'm giving it to you because you've done something. You've done something. 10 months. I I can't even imagine what that is. To give 10 months worth of my income. We'd be eating ramen noodles for the next 12 years if I did that. But, like, what is that moment in her life where she says, you've done something so magnificent that I'm willing to do this, that I can do this? What does that look like? I said before, and uh, let's look here at the end of this, this passage. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. See, her worship was not his form of worship. He didn't like it. It didn't make sense to him. He was looking for a different Messiah. He was looking for one that built a physical kingdom. And he didn't understand the worship. He didn't get it. He didn't get where her heart was coming from. So he looked for an opportunity to betray him. Like that. How, how often in, in, do we grow up in church and we're one of the, the, the chosen ones? We're one of the ones who know a lot about how it should be done. And when we don't see it done the way we are, we just bounce out. I don't trust this thing at all. But I can't tell you how many people have said, I, I, I don't go to those churches anymore because there's just too many. I don't like it. I don't want to be that church either. I want freedom of worship. I want people to feel free. Not crazy. I've seen weird things. Like, really weird things. But I want to have tr- true worship in our hearts. Where there's freedom to sing, to shout his name, to dance if we want to. You can leave your, your friends behind. Because friends all dance, and if you don't dance, then you're no friend of mine. Sorry. You can dance if you want to. I want that in our church. I want freedom of worship. I want us to recognize I'm not doing this to show off to anybody else. I'm not doing this to perform an obligation or a ritual. I'm singing these praises because it's my heart's desire to be broken in front of him, to just pour out my love. I think it's funny that Mark is showing us something here. I told you he got out of the timeline a little bit. And so some of the other gospels, they get out of the timeline for some reason. And I think it's because they're trying to show us a picture. We have Pharisees who don't understand who are looking to betray. We have a woman pouring everything out to worship him, and we have a disciple looking to betray. There's something, there's a picture that he's showing us in Mark chapter 14. We can either worship or we can work against. 
We can worship or we can work against him. This morning, if our worship team can come forward, I asked this morning, what's the cost to your worship? What's the cost? What value do you place in worship? Whether singing, whether giving, whatever it looks like, whatever worship, all of the above. We're, we're talking all of the above. What value do you place in worship? Or is it just a side thought? Is it a, is a little disclaimer at the end of the week? I said this the other week, that worship doesn't stop just because Sunday mo- Sunday's over. My worship time, singing, giving, whatever, is Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Tuesday evening, whenever. Worship is allowed to continue in our hearts all the time. This time, though, it's corporate worship that we get to gather together and to exalt his name. We see that in scripture, and that's why we do this. I wonder, is it a priority to us? Are we uncomfortable? Are we able to be humble during it? I, I want to ask you another question too. What's stopping you from being emotional during worship? I joke about this all the time, but like, I, I'm real quick to tears only with a few things. Church is basically it. When I'm in his presence, when I see God doing something, I'm talking about Kenny. I'm like ready the ball. I'm just, I, I'm stealing the box of tissues from Larissa. That's the one thing that gets me. And I'm okay with that. You won't see me crying about a Hallmark commercial like my wife. I've, I'm a movie guy. For those of you who don't know, I wanted to be a director through college. That was my dream. I've watched a ton of movies. I've never cried once during a movie. Never. But that doesn't stop me because I'm like, tough man from getting emotional in his presence realizing the weight of what he's done and what he's still doing the weight of his forgiveness currently past tense future tense in my life if I'm not emotional about that then I'm I got a heart of stone I ask what 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 prevents us from getting emotional during worship not saying it always has to be I'm not saying that but what's stopping us from feeling free What's stopping you from singing? What's stopping you from getting out of your comfort, comfort zone in a Sunday morning? What, what's, what is the barrier? What, what is that? Because if this room is filled with disciples who are looking to judge you, then I've, we've got a pretty bad room. But if this room is a room full of berries, then you should be free. And that's the environment I want to see here. A room full of berries ready to break it loose and just worship him because he's good. These women, these two women that we see enjoyed worship more than the intellectual, spiritual people in those rooms. I'm all for studying scripture. I'm all for knowing it, knowing your theology, knowing your eschatology, knowing your Christology or whatever. I'm all for that. But if I can't worship, then I'm missing the point. I'm missing out on something that's there for me. These women enjoyed it, and we can too.